Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. Luke 10, 1 to 16. This passage entails the commission to the 70 disciples. The 70 disciples. Luke 10, and we'll read verses 1 to 16. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two, or two and two, ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. In whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. And whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat what is set before you, and heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets, and say, Even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Well, this commission is similar to chapter 9 when Jesus sent out and commissioned the 12, the 12 disciples. Now there are 70 other disciples that he commissions. And with this commission, he gives another example of what it means to go about preaching and teaching the gospel, the ways in which we ought to be dedicated to doing it, and the kind of responses that we may anticipate, how we should conduct ourselves, and then the kind of responses we can anticipate when we do preach the gospel. What he says about the 70 here is also true of us in many ways. And there are certain limitations in this passage, just as there was in chapter 9 with the 12, that we should not always be restricting ourselves as to how much we carry with us. But in some cases, we do need to restrict ourselves. Whatever it is that is restricted here is really not very major in terms of how often we ought to restrict ourselves. But typically, in this passage, everything that we read in this passage is something that we ourselves will face. We will face these same things, these same issues, as these 70 disciples faced. And this is confirmed that we will face them based on other scriptures. Other scriptures will repeat and assert these kinds of truths. Okay? So let's keep in mind that this commission to the 70 is not merely there for our historical curiosity. It's there for us to learn and emulate their example. And that's proven by the fact that 
those examples are in other places in Scripture. Therefore, it's not limited to the practice of the 70. Well, first of all, we see it is the Lord who appointed 70 others. Here, Luke tells us explicitly that they were appointed, but the appointment of God is on everyone who is supposed to preach, right? In this case, they are sent out as ministers of the gospel. Well, we know from 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, that even pastors and elders have to be appointed by God and by means of men, by means of godly men, whom the Lord has already commissioned and called into the ministry. In the same way, those who go and do ministry on the preaching and teaching level, they need to be those who have truly received a call from God, an appointment from God to go and do that. They can't just do it casually or willy-nilly on their own authority. They have to do it on the authority of, of Christ. And that's whose authority they have here. It's the Lord Christ. Notice that when they receive the two kinds of reactions, one a reception and the other a rejection, they are actually rejecting or accepting Christ because the, the Christ appointed them. The Lord appointed them in verse 1. Next, he says, they were sent out two and two. Two and two or two by two. Probably in bands of two in order to help the other partner have courage. You see, when we go out alone, often it's hard to maintain courage. It's hard to speak up. But when you have a partner in the ministry, it's easier to speak up. And it's also easier for thoughts to come forward. If you lose your train of thought, your partner can help. And when your partner loses his train of thought, you can help. And when you are speaking, your partner can pray. And when your partner is speaking, you can pray. This is the way in which the two can work together courageously to conduct the ministry of preaching, teaching, witnessing for the truth. And also, when they go out by twos, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact is to be confirmed. 2 Corinthians 13, 1, uh, uh, Matthew 18, 15 to 20 are passages that confirm that when we preach, when we explain, when we report anything, it's better received when it's got credibility. And when there are two or three doing it, there's more credibility. These are not lone rangers doing their own work. They are doing it together, commissioned by the Lord. And to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Now, we know that John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ to come. And even before John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets, there were prophets before him who prepared and announced the coming of Christ. Correct? And even in this instance, we have this case of the 70 going ahead before Christ comes to those same places. Now, why would all that be necessary? It's necessary because we won't listen the first time. We won't even listen if Christ comes the first time. Or if he comes two or three times and speaks to us the word, we won't listen. We won't consider it. Not enough of us. Yes, there will be a few who will pay attention the first time Christ preaches or the second time he preaches. There will be a few, but this shows that there needs to be repeated, repetitive preaching of the gospel from many sources before the elect believe that gospel. It takes many people to plant and water. I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. 1 Corinthians 3.6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. We don't see results the first time. We don't, even Christ didn't, the first time wherever he went to preach. Because it's not the nature of preaching the gospel that there will be crowds and crowds of people who believe it. Few in the crowd will truly believe it. Then, verse 2. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful. Though there are few in the great multitude of people who actually believe, those few people throughout history make up a lot of people. The quantity is a lot. Even though the percentage is small compared to the unbelievers, the quantity is enormous, numerous. Like the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore, a great multitude in heaven which no one could count from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Revelation 7, 9. So that's why Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. It's plentiful because there are many, many people yet to be saved. And then he says the laborers are few. The laborers are few. It's always this case. It's not just the case with the 70 that the laborers are few. This is the case throughout history. Consider in the time of Noah, how many people were saved in the ark? Out of the hundreds of millions, if not billions of people on the earth at that time, how many people were saved? Eight. Eight went into the ark and all the rest of them, old and young, infants, infants, pregnant women, middle-aged people, teenagers, whoever they were, they were all destroyed in the flood. Only eight. And he was a preacher of righteousness, according to Second Peter chapter 2. He was a preacher of righteousness. They should have believed, but they didn't believe because he was one of the few faithful. Noah was. In the time of Abraham, Abraham prayed that Sodom and Gomorrah, in Genesis 18, 18 and 19, at the end of chapter 18, He's praying or requesting the Lord who's standing right in front of him not, not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And they go from 50 to 10. And God said, if I find 10, I won't destroy the city. But he couldn't find 10. There was Abraham and there was Lot. There were a few in Abraham's part, like Abraham and Sarah. But there weren't, there weren't 10 people in the city of Sodom. We know there was Lot and that's it. Also from 2nd. Peter chapter 2, we know Lot was a righteous man. Three times Peter calls him righteous, yet there weren't very many. In the time of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 22.30, Ezekiel 22.30, God tells Ezekiel the prophet about Judah and the people who are about to be destroyed by the Babylonians, who were destroyed and who are going to be destroyed again, and more exiles taken away from Judah, taken captive to Babylon. He says, I looked for a man to stand in the gap, and I found no one. And when he says, I found no one, he doesn't mean literally no one. He means there were very few. In that time, there was Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, a few others, but not very many. Not enough. And that's what he means here. The laborers are few. There will be few laborers who are faithful to preach and teach, and few of those who, once they believe it, will repeat the same and go around also saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And because of this, 
we ought to beseech, plead with, beg the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There should be consistent prayer, ardent prayer, for those who labor to preach and teach the gospel, for there to be more of them, and for them to have boldness, for them to have courage to speak forth the word of God. Paul the Apostle, for all of his godliness and all of, the, of his feats of faith, he still knew that he needed prayer. And he asked the Ephesians for prayer, that he might go out, that he might go out faithfully by the Lord of the harvest. Ephesians 6, 18, he says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He himself knew that he needed that kind of prayer. This is the prayer that Christ says that is needed for all of those who preach and teach the gospel. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, both more laborers and more faithful laborers into the harvest. Verse three, go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Go your ways. It doesn't specify where exactly they were to go and for how long they were to go, but they were to go. And when they do go, Christ says they are as lambs in the midst of wolves. The people generally are characterized as wolves or ravenous wolves, according to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That's what people are generally. So this means that Christ has a negative view of man a negative view of the nature of man. He has a fallen view of man. He does not have an elevated view of man. He knows that man's hard heart, obstinate heart, is wicked and fights against the truth of God. That's the way people are. That's the assumption we should have when we approach them. But also, they are to go out as lambs in the midst of wolves. They are lambs who need to protect themselves from the viciousness of the wolves. How do they protect themselves? In Matthew 10, 16, he says, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. When we go out, he says, be shrewd as serpents or wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Serpents know how to make their way here and there. Not in a we're not supposed to do it in a crafty way, not in a deceitful and malicious way like serpents do, but to the extent that our behavior sees the situation and studies the situation and learns and prays, learns from the Bible and prays to, to the Lord on how to answer, what to say, and to have the words to say when it's necessary, as God, uh, Christ said in Matthew 10, the Holy Spirit will give you what you should speak. He also says in Luke 12, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you are to say. So in that way, we're supposed to be shrewd as serpents. But he also says innocent 
as doves. Here in Luke, he says, as lambs, and in Matthew, he says, as doves. Paul has a similar statement in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20. He says, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. In evil be infants, that is, don't let that be who you are when you grow up. Don't let that be a part of who you are. So, as babes or infants in Christ, don't be experts in evil. In fact, don't use evil at all. Be mature in our thinking. Be wise in our thinking. Be shrewd as serpents. Or as Jesus says, as lambs in the midst of wolves. Know how you, you are going to escape and know what you're going to say, know what you're going to do to protect yourself and the gospel. Then their equipment, verse 4, carry no purse, no bag, no shoes. Here, he restricts them from carrying, I believe, extra in the sense that no shoes or no sandals. Certainly, they would have had sandals or shoes to go from place to place, especially in the, uh, on the dirty streets and roads everywhere. They would have had something like that. So when he says this, he's talking about don't carry extra of these things. Don't be concerned about how you're going to make provision while you're on this short journey. Don't worry about that because he wants to teach them God's provision, God's providential provision and we see that that's when they enter a house. That house that receives them will be the house that provides for them. Then he also says, and greet no one on the way. He's not telling them to be uncivil. He's not trying to tell them to be obtuse and, and rude to people along the path. But he's trying to tell them, you have a, a serious task you have an urgent task, make sure you are razor focused, laser focused, and go and do that task because it is the custom in Jewish culture and in many cultures, and even in our culture, when you see people, especially people you know, you, it would be rude for you not to shake their hands or not to stop by, not to say something at least for a minute or a few minutes and, and chat and shoot the breeze with them while you're headed somewhere, right? If they're right there, you haven't seen them. So he's saying, don't be preoccupied with that. Know that you have an important, urgent message to preach, and you need to go to these cities and go carry out that task. This was done also similarly by Elisha the prophet. Elisha the prophet said the same in 2 Kings 4.29. 2 Kings 4.29. And you might also notice in... 1 Kings chapter 13, the prophet, there was a prophet who was sent to preach a message, a harsh message against the evil king Jeroboam. And he was also told, don't say hi to anybody, don't give any greeting, don't even eat in those places. I want you to go there and com uh, complete your task and then leave that place, complete your task, and, and don't socialize with people. Just do what you're supposed to do. We know that Jesus wasn't against socializing and greeting and being friendly to people because in the subsequent verses of our passage, he's saying, give them a greeting 
And if they receive you, stay there. So he's not saying be un, uh, unkind and rude to people. He's saying know what your task is and go do that task without being distracted. Verse 5, And whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. Notice there, whatever house you enter. The moment they enter the house, their desire and their words indicate their desire for the house to be blessed, to have the peace of God, to have physical peace and blessing, to have spiritual peace and blessing, for them to have harmony and for them to have all that is in the storehouses of God's riches. That's what they are to wish. So when they come and they don't know yet, they don't know what's going to happen in the house, they want there to be peace. They want to live at peace with all men so far as it depends on them. They're going to do whatever is necessary to be friendly and kind and to wish them well. That's what their desire is. That's what their front and center motive is expressed in this, these words of peace. But then it depends on the hearer. It depends on the house. It depends on the receiver in the house. Verse 6. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on, upon him. But if not, it will return to you. All right. If a man of peace is there, or literally a son of peace is there, a peaceful person, a peaceful man is there. The head of the house is a man of peace. If he's that way, he receives you, then the blessing of God will rest on him because he has received a messenger of God and he desires to hear the truth of God and he desires to know the truth of God and be reconciled to God through Christ. So peace upon him. It will stay. But if it is heard by a man who is not a man of peace, peace, if not, it will return to you. If he's not a man of peace, but a man of conflict, a man who does not want reconciliation between God and himself, if he looks at the messenger of God as an evil messenger, as a messenger of doom, as a messenger of destruction, and he doesn't want anything to do with that, he would rather live his own life, then the peace, the peaceful blessing will return to you. It will ricochet off of him and come back to you. You did what you were supposed to do. So if he doesn't want what you have to offer, God will bless you for making the announcement in the first place. For making the announcement in the first place, no matter what the response is, the blessing will come back to you. Verse, uh, or if the response is negative, it will come back to you. And of course we know if the man of peace receives it, we're going to receive a blessing as well, correct? Uh, I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth, and then there's a reward. 1 Corinthians 3, 10, uh, 6 to 15 says that there is a reward for those who are faithful in preaching the gospel. Then, verse 7. What if there is a man of peace? And, say, and stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Now, firstly, do not keep moving from house to house. Be content. He's reiterating that they should be content to stay in the house that provides for them. 
Don't complain, well, the bed is too short, or the food was too hot, or the food was too cold, or there was a draft in the house, and I could... Don't complain about petty things, temporal things, discomforting things in the house, and don't try to go to a better house, a bigger house, a more lavish house, or anything like that. Don't keep moving from house to house. Don't be jittery and desirous of doing anything like that, but be content with what they give you. And he says, stay in that house eating and drinking what they give you. Now, eating and drinking what they give you. So whatever they give you to eat, whatever they give you to drink, partake of that. Consume that. For what reason? For the laborer is worthy of his wages. We ought to, the messengers of God who go from place to place, and, and even those who have a, a stationary church, they ought to be humble enough to receive from the people who are benefiting spiritually. That's partly what's going on here. The laborer is worthy of his wages. But on the other hand, and this is often the greater problem, that those who hear the word ought to understand that those who preach and teach the word are worthy of wages. They are worthy of wages. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is quite elaborate in this chapter. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 18, and let me read excerpts from that chapter. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 4, 9-4. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Verse 7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Or, verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? How about verse 13? Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar? 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Moreover, in Galatians 6, 6 to 10, he says, let the one who hears the word Share all good things with him who teaches. Those who receive or hear or is taught the word should share all good things with him who teaches. And 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. There the Apostle Paul actually quotes Luke 10, verse 7. He quotes our verse in 1 Timothy 5, 18. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Verse 8. And whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Eat what is set before you. Now, there is a similarity of expression from the previous verse uh, eating and drinking what they give you. I think in verse 7, eating and drinking what they give you has to do with payment for ministry. But in verse 8, I think it has to do, eat what is set before you has to do with contentment 
and uh, doing it without complaint because we have a similar expression to that in 1 Corinthians 10, 27. A similar expression used by Paul. In 1 Corinthians 10, 27, he says, eat what is set before you. This could be a whole Bible study on the nature of food and what we should or should not partake. And so, some verses for further study. Mark 7, 19, thus he declared all foods clean. 1 Corinthians 14, the whole chapter, 1 to 23, about those who quibble and argue and treat and mistreat brothers because of food, because of drink, and, and, and those kinds of things, food and drink, uh, and, and, and drink particular wine, and with food, clean and unclean food, whether to eat vegetables only or meat and vegetables, there are people who are contentious about that. 1 Corinthians 14 addresses that issue. Then in regards to all things being lawful, all foods being lawful, and even eating meat sacrificed to idols is lawful, if you don't know what's going on and you just do it, don't be anxious and preoccupied if you happen to eat something and you later find out that it was offered to an idol. Don't worry about it, the Apostle Paul says. From this we get from 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, 1 Corinthians 8, 7 to 13, and 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 33. Furthermore, Colossians 2, 16 to 23, uh, let no one judge you in regard to food and drink and other matters, Paul says. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5, deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons causing people to fall away from the faith. The two doctrines that are demonic in that passage are prohib uh, prohibiting, uh, prohibiting marriage and abstinence from foods. Prohibition to marriage and abstinence from foods send people to hell. And lastly, Hebrews 13, 7 to 14, Hebrews 13, 7 to 14, 13, 9 specifically, he says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. Um, one more passage, actually, we could study, uh, or two more in Acts. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, 10, 1 to 11, 18, and also Acts chapter 15. And we have similar statements to what we've just mentioned. So, eat what is set before you. Here he's anticipating his own disciples who will need to mingle with Gentiles and in unusual circumstances. They need, they need to develop this tolerance and not quibble and quarrel about these matters, which is also testing them. He's also disciplining them in all these ways for ministry. Okay, then verse 9, and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. He gives them the power to heal the sick. Heal the sick. This is obviously miraculous power, which he has not given to people or Christians generally to heal, though there are times when God hears our prayers and heals people who are sick. James chapter 5, 13, 13 to 18. For example, James encourages us to pray for the sick that God may heal them. And as well, the kingdom of God has come near to you. We note here 
that they have a spiritual message. Yes, they're going to say hello. They're going to give a peaceful blessing to the people, which would bless them spiritually and materially. Yes, they're going to eat their food, things like that. Yes, they're going to be healed of diseases, but it's not about, it's not about the physical, it's about the spiritual. It is the spiritual life that is the most important purpose of the message or the messenger. The spiritual life has to be there. We cannot say we are preaching the gospel if we don't preach the kingdom of God. If we don't preach Christ, if we don't preach Him in truth, turning from sin and believing in His death and resurrection for our forgiveness. If we don't preach that, we're not preaching the gospel. It doesn't do to say that I'm going to preach the gospel and use words if necessary. There's a popular saying, we're gonna, we should preach the gospel and use words if necessary. No, it's always necessary. It's always necessary to explain the meaning of our actions. It doesn't help just to give somebody some bread to eat or some water to drink, but you need to explain your actions to the people to some extent as to why you're doing that. And that's what Jesus is teaching them. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Enter this kingdom by means of repentance and faith. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.15 Now he prepares them for a negative reaction. A negative reaction. Notice how long he takes to prepare them for this negative reaction. Verses 10 and following, he's preparing them. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. He says that we, when we are rejected by the people, we ought to declare to them that we're going to wipe off our feet in protest against them. The dust that's on our feet, we're going to shake from our feet in protest against them and assure them that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God came near. They repudiated that kingdom. Therefore, they deserve the judgment of God. That's what that's signaling. We know he's talking about judgment because he's about to tell us about that judgment. He's talking about this physical emblem of shaking the dust off our feet and declaring it to the people is anticipating the upcoming judgment of God. On the day of judgment, they will pay for their repudiation of the gospel. They will pay for that. That's what he's teaching them. This is repeated in other places in Scripture. To see the, the actual example, let's look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 Verse 50, Acts 13, 50. In this chapter, they have two kinds of responses. They had a positive response in verses 44 to 49. A positive response, but they also had a negative response. And this is where we pick it up in verse 50. But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. 
and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We know from verse 52 that what they did was not sinful because it says, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. When they did this action, they were full of joy and the Holy Spirit, and it remained with them when they walked away from the blasphemers, the persecutors. It says that they instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas. When Paul and Barnabas entered that city, they would have declared peace, peace to this house, peace to the city. They would have wished them well. And as they preached the gospel, the true colors of the hearers would, would surface. Some would believe, but others would disbelieve and show their disbelief in this way. And then when they do manifest their disbelief, he doesn't take a long time or whatever. It doesn't tell us he did because they want them driven out. So it looks like they were being physical or threatening to be physical to drive them out of the city because it says, drove them out of their district. So when they reached that point, when the unbelievers reached that point, they shook off the dust of their feet and protest against them and went to the next city to find people who were willing to hear. Chapter 18, Acts 18, we also have a dual response. Some receive it favorably and others reject it. 18.6, Acts 18.6, And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. It says clearly that they resisted and blasphemed. He, he, they were the messengers of God, and yet they blasphemed God toward the messengers of God or to the messengers of God. Against the messengers of God, they blasphemed God. And what does he say? He shakes out his garments, also our garments, collect dust. So that's another emblem, another signal that this is the judgment you deserve. You are like dust that deserves to be blown away in the wind. And if you were chaff, thrown into the fire, fire pit. Your blood be upon your own heads. When I, if I didn't preach to you faithfully, it would be my responsibility and your responsibility, my sin for not preaching and yours for not believing but now that I have preached to you, I'm clean of that blood. I'm not responsible for that blood. There's no blood guiltiness in my hands. It's on your head. And I am clean and I will go to the Gentiles, he says. You Jews, I've stayed here long enough. But now that you resist, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And if the Gentiles resist, I'll walk away from them too and go to another city and find Jews and Gentiles who will hear the gospel. And whoever rejects, I'll walk away from them protest against them, and go on to the next uh, place. That's the way the ministry should be. Jesus actually told us that this is the way it should be. Remember he said in Matthew 7, verse 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. We have to determine at a point when our hearers are dogs and hogs. We have to determine that. They will manifest. It will come to the surface whether our hearers are dogs and hogs. And when we determine that, we shouldn't give our holy pearls to them. <coughs> that is the gospel. We should not give it to them. And if we persist in doing that, 
we better watch out because eventually it says, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. They can do so verbally and physically, tear us to pieces. So walk away. You don't have to hear it. You don't have to deal with that uh, the potential of physical violence. Just walk away. That's what Jesus is teaching the 70 as well. Now, the judgment to come, verses 12 to 15. Luke 10, 12. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. Now, these cities, we know the city Sodom, that's more common. Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Jude describes them in Jude verse 7. This was a wicked city. The, the most uh, grotesque of their wickedness is detailed to us in the book of Genesis, Genesis 19 and Jude 7 that they were men chasing men when they should have been man and woman being married in matrimony and conducting sexual matters there, not in any other context. But that's what they did. And then the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 28, he explains the judgment on these two cities, how they were lavish cities. They were promiscuous cities. They were, they were coastal cities on the Mediterranean coast near the land of Israel on the eastern Mediterranean uh, side of the Mediterranean Sea. And they were very wealthy and lavish coastal cities that sent ships all around the world and received ships and all kinds of products, but they trusted in their wealth and their riches. There we have sexual sin and we have materialism or material sin, seeking the earthly treasures these cities, they practice great wickedness, but we note here that Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, cities that are around the Sea of Galilee in the land of Israel, will receive greater judgment on the day of judgment. On that day, when the Bible says in that day or on that day, it's talking about the day of judgment when Jesus will judge the whole world. On that day, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum will be judged more harshly than those Gentilic wicked cities. Those other three cities, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. Why? Because these cities, the cities around the Sea of Galilee, these cities heard the gospel from Christ and his apostles and his disciples. They saw miracles they were benefited from those miracles, and yet they still refused to believe. The Son of God himself was there. He performed many of the miracles. His disciples around him were commissioned by him to perform these miracles, and yet people still would not believe. They were so blind. They loved their sin so much that they would not believe, though the Son of God himself was there. And this is the reason why they won't be exalted to heaven. He's saying this to, to Capernaum, but be brought down to Hades. You will be brought down to hell 
At the Tower of Babel, they wanted the tower whose top reached into heaven. That is an extremely tall tower. That's what they wanted to make a great name for themselves and to show people their accomplishment and to worship, presumably, at, at a temple or shrine at the top to worship the gods, the constellations, to do those things. But they're going to be brought down. The Tower of Babel was brought down and God had to come down to see it. It wasn't high enough for God. He had to come down to see it and then destroy it. In the same way, Edom, Edom or Esau, they lived in a rugged, mountainous territory southeast of Israel, on the southeastern side of the Dead Sea, on the other side. And they had high mountains. They thought they were invincible. But Obadiah says, in the book of Obadiah, though you make your nest up there, your, your refuge and fortress up there, I will bring you down. I will make you small. I will make you insignificant, God says, in the book of Obadiah. And in the same way here, Capernaum and the other cities will be brought down to Hades. Also, we note here, he says a couple of times that it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. In verse 12 also, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom. More tolerable. Yes, all of these six cities go to hell, but the punishment in hell for the cities that did not have this kind of, uh, of word preached and, and these kinds of miracles um, performed, their punishment is less severe in hell. It is, it's still undesirable for anybody to go there, but there is severe punishment and less severe punishment in hell. The forever eternal punishment is a factor. And just as that's true, on the other hand, there are degrees of reward in heaven. Degrees of reward in heaven according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15 and Luke 19, 11 to 27. Luke 19, 11 to 27. There are different degrees of reward in heaven. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, there's gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw. The wood, hay, straw will be burned up and will be saved yet so as through fire. And whatever work remains, each man will, will receive a reward. It's a reward for what remains of the gold, silver, and precious stone kinds of works we have performed, a reward. And in Luke 19, 11 to 27, this is the parable of the money usage, parable of the talents of money. And there was one slave given five and then he invested and made five more. And, and Christ says, you'll receive 10 cities. And the other one had two, and he made two more. Um, and he says, uh, you are to be over five cities. I'll give you that. And then uh, the one who did not use his money properly, but put it away in a handkerchief, Christ says to him, uh, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then you, why did you not put the money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? And he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. So now the one who has 10 now has 11 and the one who had one who didn't 
you work and exert with that, it's taken away from him, and he's going to be the one who is going to be tortured in the presence of Christ. It says, But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Well, a, a brief explanation that was for what he means by it's more tolerable. So degrees of punishment in hell, degrees of rewards in heaven. And lastly, verse 16, Luke 10, 16. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. When people listen to the messengers of the gospel, they are listening to Christ and God the Father. People don't realize that. People don't consider that. People don't want to admit that. But that's what it is. When they hear us, they, and we're doing it the way the Bible tells us to preach and teach, when we do it that way, they are actually listening to the words of God, sent by the messengers of God. That's a solemn thing that needs to be considered by the hearers of the gospel. The hearers of the gospel have to understand this point. It's not a mere man. But the people who hear often consider us mere men, and therefore they reject us. But when they reject us, they have to also recognize that they are not just rejecting us, they're rejecting Christ and God the Father. They can't say they are with God when they reject us, and when they reject us, they reject Christ, and Christ represents the Father. There's an unbroken chain there. There's a bond of love, but a bond of responsibility too between us, Christ, and the Father. So whoever mistreats us is mistreating Christ. That's why the Bible calls us, the church, the body of Christ. And then when they mistreat the body of Christ they are, and Christ, they are mistreating God the Father. This is a solemn task that people need to consider. But this is not what happens often. People, when they hear us, They'll say, well, no, look at that. He's just a fanatic. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But they need to recognize that what we're saying is from the Bible. It's in the Bible. And they need to be held accountable to the Bible. They're not just rejecting us. They are rejecting God himself. That needs to be told to them. That's why they are to say, uh, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. It has come near because God sent me to, to, to tell you this message. Romans chapter 10, 10, 14, and 15 reiterates this truth. Romans 10, 14. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. When preachers are sent to preach the gospel, they are sent to those who should hear and receive it. This is what we do. One more aspect of this verse, verse 16, is we ought to consider with great solemnity when we speak the Word of God. We shouldn't be casual with it. 
We should be very careful with it. We should handle it accurately. We should interpret it with great precision. We should be careful to emphasize what the Bible emphasizes. We should not make uh, mountains out of molehills. We should not strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Matthew 23, 24. We should not do that. We ought to preach and teach the Bible the way the Bible expects us to preach and teach it, the way the Bible expects us to explain it, the way the Bible expects us to repeat it with all seriousness, not casually, not flippantly, teach and preach the Bible. And this relates to the average preacher of the Bible today. The average preacher of the Bible today, when he shirks this responsibility, when he doesn't consider what his task is, he's actually manifesting to the people his disdain for the Bible. The Bible says that when he's lifting up the Bible, when he's teaching and preaching the Bible, he's representing God. So when he's not teaching the Bible, he's saying, I don't want to represent God because I'm embarrassed by God. Or God, God's way of my livelihood or God's way of my notoriety or God's way of this or that, I don't like it. I'm going to do it my way. He's going to practice human wisdom, human traditions to do whatever it takes to make himself be propped up in front of the people. That's showing that he is a false prophet, false teacher. He does not want to represent God because he's embarrassed by God. And he doesn't think God has the wisdom and the power to help him in his life and ministry. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.